That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that's more than halfway there living on a prayer as we revisit the radical decade of the 80s for the music, the movies, the games, the toys, the shows, all the things that we love so much. I'm Chris. And I'm Ben. And this is 80s High Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. We are super pumped. I have teased out my hair. I have sprayed it with all kinds of, uh, I found some old Aquanet, got some Lycra spandex. It's it's going to be an episode. What is up, Christopher? No, this is the first time, it's like having a standing desk at work. This is the first time I've stood recording the podcast because my jeans are so tight. I'm worried they'll, they'll split if I try and sit down. It's a great power stance, though. You definitely no, look like rock. you're ready to like thrash on some guitar. I've got the eyeliner. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is. I'm so stoked. This is great, but I can't breathe. This this outfit is very tight. Yeah, yeah. Maybe just undo that top button. <gasps> just I'm gonna yeah. Leave. Button's gonna put the camera out on my computer. Oh uh, well, we're so excited, but we're here in homeroom, and as you know, if you're a, a listener of the show. We like to just catch up a little bit, talk about things 80s, maybe do a little reference back to a show previously. And uh, we've got a couple things to share. Ben, do you have something to kick us off in homeroom? Chris, I have so much movie news, I don't even know where to start. The 80s movies are hot. Okay, we what have you got? 80s documentaries coming out left and right. Just announced the very first Cheech and Chong biopic is in the works. Okay. Uh, Hidden Pictures <laughs> is partnering with uh, Cheech Merritt and Tommy Chong. Uh, Underground, Five All in the Fifth Entertainment. Uh, it's the first time there's ever been a biography about these guys. And these guys were huge in the really? 80s. Their, their first movie came out right at the end of the 70s. Next two were in the 80s. So that's cool. I'm surprised one's never been done on them before. I know. Now, if like the most famous stoners in all of American history aren't your flavor, what was also announced this week is the very first documentary about Devo. Oh. You know, Devo, whip it, whip it good. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, self-titled uh, by director Chris Smith, who did American Movie and Fire. Did you ever see the documentary on Netflix? That guy is doing the Devo oh, documentary. Yeah. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. They are really interesting. They're they a really fascinating band. I'm stoked about that. And then not necessarily a documentary, but the last, the last sort of one is we're getting a re-release, because this references back to an episode of Talking Heads' 1984 concert film, Stop Making Sense. Hmm. It's being re-released on 4K in August, and they're also going to re-release a deluxe edition of the same album, the soundtrack, on vinyl uh, in August as well. So there's a lot of cool, like, 80s documentaries reliving the live action coming back uh, this year and next year. Oh, that's amazing. That's so great. Well, I had an interesting run-in. Ben, I already told you about this, but I'm going to revisit it because we're here on the show, which is I was at Target just as last week, and I'm going through the game section, and I saw Mancala, which is that old ancient game that could be, historians think, could be 8,000 years old. That's pretty epic. That's very cool. So from 80s high to 8,000 years ago high, (laughs) 
Uh, Mancala is, you can buy it in a box store. You can go buy that game. And it's, uh, I don't know, it looks like it could be fun. Ben, I should pick it up for a future board game night so that we could do our timely review of this 8,000-year-old game. It's time. It's time we do a review. (laughs) It's amazing. So that was fun. Back and forth. What else you got? Yes. So classmate Mikey has been harping on me for years of a of a gap in my eighties movie uh, history knowledge, and I I finally signed up for HBO, and there it was on the homepage, nineteen eighty six's Cobra, starring Sylvester Stallone, Bridget Nielsen, and Brian Thompson. Oh, I had never seen this movie. He was raving about it like crazy. Sat down, gave it a watch. It's like a classic, like, 80s tough cop, don't play by the rules kind of mm. movie. He's a little quirky. He's a little eccentric. Uh, Sly is? Yeah. Yeah. He's sort I of feel like, like he's usually kind of, like, straightforward. He doesn't right. usually, like, play eccentric or quirky. No, okay. He's like, okay. He's, like, he's, like, big on eating healthy in the movie, like, giving everyone health eating tips while he's, like, slaying terrorists. Okay. Uh, we know nothing about these terrorists. So, like, think of the bad guy development in, like, Die Hard. None of that in Cobra. Mm. These are just, like, dudes who need to get mowed down. Is it like Top Gun where it's, like, a, a nameless country we're kind at war of, with? Kind of. I mean, like, the main villain is very scary, but you don't know all his henchmen. Uh, but he's got a cool gun, cool car. It's got a great final showdown. Like, the whole final thing okay. in, like, a warehouse complex. Kind of like RoboCop. Great. But it's got maybe you've heard – there's two quotes from it. There's two lines. So I was like, oh, I've heard that line before. That's where this comes from. You're a disease, and I'm the cure. Oh, yeah, of okay. course. Right that, yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, and then right in the opening scene, there's this guy who's doing some bad stuff in a supermarket. And he goes, I got a bomb here. I'll kill her. I'll blow this whole place up. Sly goes, go ahead. I don't shop here. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that before. one, but that's good. No, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but I know I'm glad I watched it. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not going to, like, put a Cobra movie poster up on my bedroom wall. But it was, it was kind of a fun watch. It was a fun watch. It's an interesting Stallone um, role for him. Nice. What year was that? Do you know when? Uh, 1986. Oh, Cobra. okay. Smack dab in the middle. All right. Anything else that you're carving in your desk over there? I see you're folding up a paper football. You have a note to pass. What's going on? Well, the last thing we have is just a fun little announcement, something that we're excited about and we've kind of talked about for a little bit. We've actually had some listeners ask about it. So we started a site on coffee.com and that's spelled exactly as you would imagine, K-O-F-I. Ridiculous. But it's a place where you can, if you want to show us a little bit of love and help support the show, you can go on there, make a little one-time donation to us, uh, buy us coffee. And, uh, of course, we'd be very appreciative if you wanted to stop by and do that. Uh, You're by no means required to when listening to the show, nor do we expect it of you, nor will we think less of you if you do not. But if you like listening and you're like, hey, coffee's on me, have a few bucks, that all helps us recoup some of the cost of putting the show together for you, which we we certainly love doing. So that's coffee.com slash 80s high podcast you'll see us there you'll see the familiar locker with the books and the walkman and all the other fun uh 80s references and nostalgia and look like if if you're a podcast noob like i was years ago you know might not really know that there are practical expenses to the show you you can't put these audio files online for free you have to host them you got to pay for that hosting and i forget about that you know we got the reminder a couple months ago hey your annual fees due and look that's hard. You know, I run a halfway house for lost Mogwai and Gremlins. And that <laughs> night, midnight came, 
and they looked up at me and I said, sorry, guys, I, I have no food tonight. I had to host the podcast. And you just, you know how gremlins get after midnight when they're hungry. And so, you know, help, help me grow, grow my clan. <laughs> they're hungry. They're excited. Be a part of the solution team. Yeah, and I'm raising a batch of hungry, hungry hippos. And let me tell you, those marbles are not free either. It's killer. It adds up, man. But no, if you are interested, you can head over. Uh, also, give us a fun little note if you do decide to do that. We'd like to read it on the show. And uh, so if you got a funny quip, if it's 80s uh, reference laden, all the better. Or if it's an inside joke, we'd love all of that. So again, not required if if money's a little tight, uh, don't want to do that. But you were like, hey, how else can I support y'all? You can still go to Apple Podcasts or to Spotify. Give us a rating of five stars. That helps other people find the show as well. Gives us a little nudge, hopefully increase our listenership, which is awesome. Uh, if you found us recently or you've been a longtime listener, thank you so much. Love y'all. And then just a little extra cherry on top is if you're on Apple Podcasts, you give that star rating. Also consider writing just a quick little review, little fun shout out. We've got a you know, growing number on there and it, it warms my little heart every time I see those. And I'm like, y'all so sweet for taking a few minutes out of your day to, uh, to go do that because, you know, I'll admit it's like, oh, I need to go give this podcast I like a fun review. And then I forget about it. And you know, life happens and I go do other things. So if you have a chance to take those moments, that's awesome. If you're like, nah, I don't want to do any of that. I want to hear about slippery when wet. That's totally fine too. Keep listening. We're loving that you're here. Here's how we know how popular we're getting. Every time you leave a review or leave five stars, you know, we, we bump up a little bit in SEO results and we end up getting more and more and crazier and more creative spam in our email. <laughs> And the more spam we get, the, the more we know we're getting higher and higher in search results. So keep pumping that spam. We're ready to donate to a prince who needs to get out of jail in a foreign country. Help us out. That's how we know. Thanks for your support. That is definitely a barometer of our success. The spam <laughs> overflowing. I love it so much. Uh, you know what else is overflowing? My head with all of these banging freaking tunes from today's topic. Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet album. Ben, let's say we head down the hall. Now, I will note, you need to be careful. The janitor has cleaned the floors, and uh, there's a yellow sign out there that is indicating we better be careful. A literal sign of things to come. What we might find down the hallway in history class. Slippery When Wet. Okay, I'll see you. Chris! Oh, no. <laughs> I rocked too hard. Could have cracked a rib, but you know, the show must go on. Uh, that's true showmanship. I definitely split my size one jeans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh. Well, hopefully you did not contract a social disease. Uh, hey, on your there way. it is. Fantastic. All right. Well, as I've said probably three, four times now, we're here to talk about Bon Jovi's album, Slippery When Wet, from 1986. Let's get into some of the particulars. What is this album? Well, it is the third studio album by American rock band Bon Jovi, headed by Mr. John Bon Jovi himself. As I mentioned, it was released in August of 1986 by Mercury Records in North America and Vertigo Records internationally. This album features many of Bon Jovi's best-known songs, including 
You Give Love a Bad Name, Living on a Prayer, and Wanted. Dead or alive. Yeah, how could you not even know this album existed? Come on, get out there. I mean, huge. Holy smokes. Well, how did we get to this album? How did we arrive there? Let's back it up a little bit. Let's talk about Bon Jovi's history leading up to Slippery When Wet. So, John Bon Jovi, Ben, do you know at what age he kind of started his music career? Uh, let's see. Well, if he's anything like Herbie Hancock, what, seven, six? So it's a little bit older, but not much. He was 13. He was performing music live. That was in 1975. He's playing piano and guitar, and he had his first band called Rays. Now, over the next five years or so, he goes on to perform, start, in multiple bands. Uh, But let's jump to 1980, the beginning of our infamous decade here. He records his first single, Runaway. It's in his cousin's studio, and he's actually backed by studio musicians. So it's got, you know, probably some production value. Okay, groovy. And he actually gets it played on some local radio station uh, as part of a compilation tape. So getting a little bit of airtime. So I guess I would put him at about 18 years old. By mid-1982, John is out of school. He's working part-time at a women's shoe store. And he ends up taking on a job at Power Station Studios. This is a recording... What's up? Bon Jovi starts out as Al Bundy, married with children. He's a shoe salesman? Really? Sure was. Who knew? Sure was. I know. That's amazing. Yeah. So while he's doing this job, he does take on another job at Power Station Studios. This is a Manhattan recording facility. His cousin is co-owner of that. I'm going to assume this is the same cousin mentioned earlier. And during this time, he makes, you know, several demos and he's sending them out to companies, but not, you know, nothing's really going anywhere. However, <laughs> I did not know this. This was the best little tidbit I found. So we're, we're, we're going to hit it early because this is insane. His first professional recording is in the most unlikely of places. Uh, ben, are you familiar with the album Christmas in the Stars? No, A what is that? Star Wars Christmas album. This isn't the holiday special. This is different from the holiday special. And that is a great question. I don't know if it's related to the holiday special, but this is a music album. And John Bon Jovi is the lead vocalist on R2-D2, We Wish You a Merry Christmas. That's amazing. Here's the funny thing. A friend of mine that I met in grad school, his name is also Ben, he loved kind of like offbeat music. And he would make CDs for me all the time with like quirky stuff on it. And one of them is he made like a quirky Christmas song album. R2-D2, We Wish You a Merry Christmas was on there. So when I got to this, I was like, I know this song. Hold on. No, wait, that can't be. And I went back and listened. It's a younger voice. It's not quite, you know, what we hear on Slippery When Wet or later career. But I was like, I totally get it. That's John freaking Bon Jovi. That's awesome. That's super awesome. So then let's go to 1983, just a few years before Slippery When Wet. This is wild. 83, a local radio station, WAPP, 103.5 FM, The Apple. WAP! Includes a reworked Runaway that Bon Jovi had kind of re-recorded. 
they take this reworked track and include it on a compilation album of local homegrown talent. And the song starts getting some airplay in the New York area. And all these sister stations and major markets, they're picking up the song. So this is that first song where like, okay, he's getting some momentum finally. And later in 1983, in March to be specific, the band starts to come together, which will eventually become Bon Jovi. Come together. Oh, sorry, that's the Beatles. In addition to Mr. John Bon Jovi himself, you have bassist Alec John Such and an experienced drummer, Tico Torres. Both were formerly of the band Phantoms Opera. Nice. Then you add in Bon Jovi's friend and neighbor, Dave Sabo. Never really officially joined the band, but he and John had made kind of a gentleman's agreement of like, hey, whoever makes it first, we're going to help the other one out. But Sabo later goes on to form the group Skid Row. Holy cow. Okay, that's awesome. That's awesome. So he has a small influence on the band, but not a lot because he goes off and has his own endeavor. They find hometown guitarist Richie Sambora. Sambora had toured with Joe Cocker. He played with a group called Mercy. And he had also been called for an audition with Kiss. So that's, you know, not nothing. Good group of uh, of folks here. Yeah, yeah. And then we're going to round up the group with David Bryan. Uh, Now, David had quit the band that he and Bon Jovi, one of the bands that he and Bon Jovi had formerly started because he went to school to study medicine. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Rock star goes to study medicine. I think we know where this is going. I think medicine's probably not what this guy really wants. He's in college. He's like, I'm going to pursue music full time. Gets accepted to Juilliard school. Oh, killing it. And Bon Jovi calls and is like, hey, we're putting a band together. We might be getting a record deal. He leaves school. He gives up going to Juilliard to join the band. That's wild. That's that's a big move. A lot of big moves, actually, for this guy. I mean, he made the right call, but that's a hard call. The band's playing, showcases. They're opening for local talent. They're starting to catch attention of some record execs. They get signed to Mercury Records. And it's around this point that they are like, hey, we need to come up with a group name. Ben, did you see what one of their early, probably big contender ideas for a band name was? It wasn't Bon Jovi. Wait, who is the gentleman's agreement guy? Uh, Dave Sabo. They were just going to call themselves Dave Sabo. Actually, it's going to be Sabotage is what they were going to call it. Oh, you know, yo, it's a sabotage. Okay, okay, I like it. I'm on board for it. No, what was it? Johnny Electric. Okay, so here's the thing, though. I'm kind of on board with it. Like, I kind of like it, actually. It's not the worst name ever. It's not, like, terrible by any stretch. But apparently a friend of the band, Pamela Marr, had suggested they call themselves Bon Jovi, kind of following along the example that Van Halen had set. Oh, Van Halen was the inspiration. That makes sense. That's cool. So I was like, okay, I guess like they weren't like super keen on it, but went with it anyway. And then they kind of struck it big and they're like, okay, well, this is what we are. We got to stick with it. This is great now. We can't go back. Okay. So the band's together. We got their name. Well, now we need an album. And of course, what's your first album called? If they're going to call their own band their own name, then the first album just needs to follow the trend. (laughs) Self-titled, 1984, Bon Jovi. This album includes the band's first hit single, Runaway. It's back. He's been hanging his hat on Runaway for a while. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It reaches the top 40 of Billboard's Hot 100. You know, it peaks at number 43 on Billboard 200 album chart. It's doing all right. 
And uh, the group soon finds themselves opening for Scorpions in the U.S. and for Kiss in Europe. That's so big. That's huge. They get attached to some big names right away. Okay, well, they're young. They're hungry. They're eager. They're excited. No time to waste. 1985. One year later, second album comes out. 7,800 Degrees. 7,800 Degrees Fahrenheit, right, is the name of the album? So, okay, thank you. Yes, yeah, seven. Jeez. 7,000. <laughs> Okay, you're perfect. I can't say this. 7,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's, That's hard thing. to say. Here's what I need a classmate to write into us about. Because I, in the research, was trying to find, did you pronounce it 7,800 degrees Fahrenheit or 7,800 degrees Fahrenheit? Mm. I couldn't find an interview that talked about it. I couldn't okay. find, like, if you Google on YouTube, how do you pronounce, like, I have no idea. So if you were if you were there, you're Bon Jovi fan, let us know because this is, this is a black spot in my research. I don't, I don't feel good about it. This is like when Prince changed his name to the symbol, and we're like, how do we pronounce that? Same thing. How do we pronounce <laughs> right, right. 7800 together? Right. Thank you. Please. Okay. So uh, there's three singles from this one, Only Lonely, In and Out of Love, and Silent Night. This album peaks at 37. So doing a little better. Yeah. But just a little. Just a little. It does get certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America. You know, this album doesn't do as well as the band had hoped. But it does allow them to get on the road and be touring some more, get their name out there, build up a little street cred, all that good stuff. So second album, not the success they want. They're looking for a hit on number three. Third time needs to be the charm. Well, this happens to be Slippery When Wet, 1986. Once again, they're cranking these out. They don't have time to waste. They're full of music. They're full of ambition. They're prolific. And they decide, we're going to change our approach for this album. And they hire professional songwriter Desmond Child. Mm -hmm. He's going to come in, be a collaborator. So that's one shakeup. Let's get someone in here, crank out some, you know, killer lyrics. They decide we're going to be a little more mainstream. We're going to sound a little heavier than our first two albums. And in order to get there, they're going to bring on producer Bruce Fairbairn. They're like, hey, we're going to up and move to Vancouver, Canada. And we're going to spend six months there putting this album together. Which is crazy. I mean, uh, to be fair, like, we haven't done a lot of dedicated album research on this podcast. But, I mean, to to record it starting between January and July of 1986 and then to have it hit the record shelves in August that same year seems like a wicked fast turnaround. That's a big turnaround. For sure. That's wild. Like, even these days... It's not super common for bands to turn something around that quickly. Yeah. They can certainly do it, especially if they bypass traditional methods and they're like, I just digitally dropped everything. Enjoy. Sure. Like, you can do it, but if you're actually pressing albums, you're you're putting out tapes, you're pressing CDs, you're, yeah. you're putting out old school vintage vinyls because that's what everyone loves these days, that takes time. And there's like usually like a big promotion arm behind it to make sure it's, you know, sure. getting out there. And obviously, if they're going to do it, like the record company wants to hit high on the chart, wants to hit a sales goal. And so they got to pump it up. That's a quick turnaround. I mean, it's no one week turnaround for an episode of Quantum Leap, but it's pretty fast, I think. And the record <laughs> is it's pretty fast. It's pretty fast. Oh, man. So they made this big change across the board. Now, Fairbairn had worked on an album without love for the heavy metal band Black and Blue. Mm-hmm. And that was part of what attracted John Bon Jovi. He's like, mm-hmm. he liked the sound quality of that album. And that's where he's like, I want this dude to be our producer. He's got a sound I'm looking for. He's got a, a style 
I Want to Bring to Our Band. And they end up writing 30 songs. That's crazy. Which is wild for what ends up being 10 tracks. So they've basically got three times the number of songs. And they actually audition them in New Jersey and New York to teenagers. I love that part of the story. And they were just like feel the feedback from the audience and then they just keep rearranging the tracks in order of how exciting they were for the crowds and keep like i just like i like i like the market research i like the live market research the focus groups it's good yeah this to me is like crowdsourcing right they're like and and there's a little bit of that though not as much remember when herbie hancock they like put the track together for rocket and they went and played it at like a local like stereo shop and they were like getting feedback and they're like oh okay these kids are like freaking loving this song. They can't get enough of it. We know we have a hit. And Bon Jovi's going out there and they're like, okay, let's see what hits. We're doing market research on the streets, in the clubs, you know, out there from normal people. You know, this isn't like doctored focus groups and industry bigwigs. These are kids who are probably going to go buy the album. What yeah. do they like? That's perfect. And yeah, you're right. Ultimately, not only the tracks they chose, but the order of the tracks. Super cool. I always wonder about track order. I like listening to whole albums in some cases. Like, have you ever had an album where you're like, who ordered this? A robot? Was this random chance that ordered it? I don't understand. There's no flow. There's no coherence. I know we're getting to like a little bit of chemistry here, but this is this sure. is an art that has been lost because the minute iPod introduced shuffle mode on an album, you lost that art of like, not only how artists set up their tracks on an album to like put you on that ride, but also like we talked in our mixtape episode, like there's a lot of thought and heart when you make a mixtape for somebody of like what the sure. order of the songs are. That's right. And shuffle, shuffle just kills that magic. Yes, you are correct. I'm also saying though, I think some bands don't care about the album itself. No. And this is historical too. It's not just since digital and yeah, you can just download stuff and or listen to it Spotify on Shuffle or a playlist or whatever. There are some bands that don't seem to have put the album together in any coherent order. So it's yeah, not even just on the yeah, listener yeah, 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 side. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, who ordered this? It feels like somebody was just like, I don't care. Just, you know, put it through a random number generator. There's your order. I just, I don't get it sometimes. I like it when it tells that kind of story. And there are some albums where it's like, even if you could listen to it piecemeal, you kind of want to hear the whole thing because it is an experience. I always think of uh, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. You want to listen to that as an experience, right? Or like Green Day had a couple of like rock opera albums, like uh, American Idiot, where it's like, I want to hear this whole thing through because it's like telling a big story and the tracks dovetail into each other. I love stuff like that. Not yeah, enough artists good. do it. And uh, I wish more would because when they do, oh, that stuff is so cool. You're right. Mm-hmm, We're totally mm-hmm. far afield. We've, See, we have sorry. one foot in chemistry class. I, I We're still, off. I'm so sorry. Our butts are still in the seats here in history. So let's close it out so we can talk more about chemistry. So they crowdsource, they get their 10 final tracks together and they say, we need a name for this album. And we've been saying it, Slippery When Wet. Ben, I assume they stumbled into a janitor's closet. They thought they were going to go out on stage and they walk in and they're like, whoa, dude, we're here in the janitor's closet. Look at that yellow sign, Slippery When Wet. That should be our album. Right? That's how it went. I wish it was that innocent. No. So the band is a bunch of young gentlemen. And to quote Bon Jovi himself, back then, their testosterone was at a very high level. 
And after a day of uh, hard recording, they went out to uh, what Canada likes to refer to as a peeler. Uh, To be specific, if you're in the Vancouver area, it's the number five orange. And there, there was a a unique, one might say, performance on stage in which a dancer uh, integrated a working shower into the performance. Uh, which really, you know, this kind of harkens back to our Who Framed Roger Rabbit episode with the wolf and the eyes bugging out and the tongue unrolling when Jessica Rabbit performs on stage. Yeah. The band kind of has a reaction to this very unique avant-garde performance. And the the phrase slippery when wet sticks with them. And they're like, that's it. They also said, we're coming back here every single night <laughs> that we're up here. But uh, yeah, that's where the name came from. I like your description of the Looney Tune style, like, Aruga. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's pretty much, according to Bon Jovi, what happened. So that's where it comes from. The album cover artwork is actually, I think it's like a wet trash bag. There's a great story there, though. Do you have it? I actually forgot to write it down. Yeah, so the band originally proposed it was going to be this sort of pink border. And there would be a yellow T-shirt on front. Uh, the T-shirt is worn by a very attractive woman, very very zoomed in on the T-shirt that would have the album name on it. Uh, but when they proposed this to the record label, they said, absolutely not. This will not be allowed <laughs> to be sold at record stores. You got to come up with something else. And Bon Jovi said, like, just on the spot, he, like, grabbed a garbage bag, spritzed it down with water, and then just with his finger wrote, slippery when wet on the wet garbage bag and that became the out al- they like take a picture of that that's brilliant and that became the album cover i love that they're like we want a chesty lady in a probably tight t-shirt no fine we'll put a trash no, bag like trash i love bag. <laughs> right they're like kids okay, throwing fine. a tantrum the funny thing is it didn't sound like a tantrum it was like his next best idea which <laughs> at least in that retelling he's like okay well, what about this like he wasn't like fine i'll just do a trash bag he's like oh oh, okay i got another ooh, idea ooh, 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 ooh. it's just as good and it's so metal and rock and roll just as the first one yeah it's so oh, good that's hilarious ridiculous oh man okay so with the tracks all lined up the album title the album cover we finally get the release of Slippery When Wet, and it is an instant commercial success. It spends eight weeks at number one in the U.S. Billboard 200 chart. It's named by Billboard as a top-selling album of 1987. In 1988, the American Music Awards, they win favorite pop rock band duo group. The album is nominated but does not win. And just spoilers, this is their best-selling album to date, certified 12 times platinum, making it one of the top 100 best-selling albums in the United States. And the album has also been called the album that turned heavy metal into a radio-friendly pop format and is commonly seen as a breakthrough for hair metal. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about that in chemistry class. But out of the gate, this album, they wanted a success. They got it. Absolutely. And you know, what's interesting is some of the background of the songs. I mean, the 10 we ended up with were not necessarily the 10 we could have ended up with. I mean, a lot of this went back and forth. Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora wrote most of the songs. You Give Love a Bad Name, Living on a Prayer, Without Love, and I Die for You. Uh, Those were co-written with Desmond Childs. And Wild on the Streets, Bon Jovi did by himself. So that's sort of a mix. I like that You Give Love a Bad Name was actually originally written for Bonnie Tyler, who sang Total Eclipse of the Heart. Mm-hmm. But it was as the title, If You Were a Woman and I Was a Man. But they just rewrote the lyrics and Bon Jovi got it. Another one of bands trying to, different bands getting the songs, Love is a Social Disease 
Aerosmith was trying to get that after it was written. Oh, no kidding. Right? Um, the only other one I thought was interesting to point out is, like, Bon Jovi actually wasn't really excited to include Living on a Prayer on the album. He was a little reluctant. Yeah. He wasn't sure. He honestly didn't think it was a good enough song to put out there, despite the feedback they had gotten from the teens in Jersey and New York. But Sambora really talked him into it. He really believed in the song. He loved it. So the band re-recorded it. But of course, Living on a Prayer goes on to be like the signature song of Bon Jovi. Yeah. Um, so thank goodness it was on there. Absolutely. The only thing I want to say that you ended on there with the awards is like, this happened in three years from the band yeah. being formed to writing one of the most successful albums in the history of recorded music. Right. And to me, like that seems meteoric. To go to that level of success in three years on your third album is insane to me. Herbie Hancock released 73 albums before he finally got to his big one, and then he went on to release 900 more. So. <laughs> and that was just in 1982. Like, that was just from the 80s. So no, but cool. I mean, that, that's a great point. It's like, when you look at the time scale, I did not realize from the time the band formed to the time they A, released three albums, and B, had a massive hit, was so compressed. Yeah. It's wild. It blows my mind. I think it's time we slide down this stripper pole, but keep our clothes on, everybody. I want us to descend into chemistry class to revisit our memories and feelings of this album. Ben, what do you say? I am down to clown. Excellent. Well, we safely made it into chemistry class. There was no pole-related crashes, slips, trips, or falls, so we're Chris, good. I am coated in glitter. I don't even know how to get all this off. I mean, that's what happens when you slide the pole, man. You're just, you're, that's just, you when know, you slide that's the, the risk pole. you take. That's what happens. No. Oh my God. What am I going to do with this stuff? Uh, okay. Let's get into well, it. Well, what's also glittering are our memories and some of our listeners' memories about this album. So let's kick it off like we normally do, Ben, and find out, hey, what are your earliest memories of this album, any of these tracks, what kind of hits the memory bank for you? Or, no, let's start early, and then after that we can talk a little bit more about any recent memories. So, what you got for us? I was a very, very wee lad when this album came out. I, you know, I don't want to lie to our listeners. I have no 80s memories of this album or Bon Jovi, because just I wasn't at the age yet to like listen to this stuff rock out. It's sort of like uh, back when we talked about Thriller, where like you just can't remember a time before Thriller because the major right. hits off this album are just everywhere once you're in the world. I mean, it's on the radio nonstop. It's your mall soft jams. Unfortunately, these days it's your it's your soft rock Target shopping jams right. <laughs> while you, while you're looking at uh, your new Mancala. newly minted Mancala and Basilinda <laughs> on the shelves. So I have none. I inf uh, however. I did tap into an older member of my family. Okay. Classmate Andrew, who did call in with some great insights on our Pat Benatar episode. That's right. And I loved I loved his comments when I asked, like, hey, what do you remember this album? He said, all I remember were, quote, he looks pretty amazing in those jeans. And, quote, why do all the girls I like keep talking about how amazing he looks in all those jeans? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so accurate. I mean, seriously, why? Like, if you go back and watch some of his performances, like, how do you rock around a stage that hard and jeans so tight and not blow them open? It was insane. Yeah, I love that. 
What about you? Would like, do you remember being crowd surfed up to the stage and like you were on his shoulders and uh, you you were saying living on a prayer with him? So Uncle John, um, Uncle John, <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Jojo. Similarly, I don't have any early memories. It's one of those things where. I feel like it's always been in the kind of popular conscience of, you know, like history and of pop culture. Obviously, I would have been introduced to it at some point. I'm sure it was through MTV or listening on the radio, something to that effect, right, where these songs would have come on. And they just, they still to this day, you hear them anywhere and everywhere. You know, they're going to show up at some part of life because they are so iconic and they're so huge. So yeah, I don't have like a really specific early memory, but I know I would have had to have seen, gosh, we had MTV on, I feel like a lot. Maybe it wasn't as much as I remember, but I remember it being on a lot because it was so new back then. Mm -hmm. And I just remember a lot of those music videos and we're going to talk a little bit about their music videos because it's not like other bands, but it would have had to have cropped up at some point. And I just remember overall that this band, as well as other bands in this, you know, kind of glam, rock, glam metal, hair metal uh, genre, very showy, very high energy, lots of leather, lots of exposed torsos, catchy, fun songs, easy to rock out to. As a kid, it was easy for me to get into them because they were freaking banging. They were so so cool. They're so They were catchy. They were fun. And so that's some of my earliest memories that I can remember. Again, this album, some of the songs, but also just generally speaking, the genre itself. I love it. See, this is why you bring the heat. You have the memories. This is what we need. I mean, a little bit, a little bit. More than I got. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of our listeners' memories. Right. Let's get into them. You've talked about a classmate. Let's add a few other voices into the mix. Well, let's just kick off with... Rockstar Mikey B. Mikey B. He's back, baby. And we asked, hey, what are your rad memories of the Slippery When Wet album or of Bon Jovi? Any standout tracks? Mikey B has this to say, all caps, overrated. Overrated. So angry. Except for Wanted, Dead or Alive. That stuff slaps because the band wasn't trying to pretend to be something they're not. Ooh, I feel like that's foreshadowing from classmate Mikey B. Quite possibly. What else do we have from the listeners? Classmate Mikey is like the, the, the kid who answers the question without raising his hand yet. Like, just as the teacher finishes saying it, you're like, just sit down. I will get to you. And it's like, no, it's overrated. <laughs> well, I'm coming to you. We're getting there. Right. This is great. Juan Bongiorno. Love it. Classmate says, I have literally never liked Bon Jovi. <laughs> And yet they're so culturally transcendent that I know the words to a double-digit number of their songs. The album is a cornerstone of that unfortunate misallocation of neurons. First of all, you're doing great on the grammar and the vocabulary. Really appreciate it. Uh, But yeah, bringing another two heats back-to-back against Bon Jovi. Yeah. I will say uh, Juan Bongiorno probably does know how to spell coffee correctly. Probably. Uh, it's not KO-FI, everybody. Thank goodness. So. <laughs> Thank goodness somebody does. <laughs> Zebra Pants Gem so has good. this to say. This album came out during the pinnacle of hairband days. I remember listening to this and other tapes on my Walkman. Let's just let that, just throw just it just out let there. that sit with you for let a minute. Let that sit in. Ah. Hook that thought on your jeans pocket and walk around for a minute. So listening to this and other tapes on my Walkman, on the way to and from school. I loved Wanted Dead or Alive the best on this particular album. 
that song's getting a little bit of love. I like it. There you go. I love it. I didn't it's great. honestly expect it. It's a little bit of a musical departure from the rest. Uh, we're going to talk about our, you know, each track kind of break it down, but did not expect that one to get um, all the love. But here we are, at least from classmates. It's getting it. It's so good. Ben, you may have gotten some other feedback, Brad memories, thoughts about this album. So I love this. So I, I have a new classmate to introduce, uh, classmate Justin who is a personal connection and is actually a professional music critic and editor. Who's Oh, so okay. Got some, got some like real industry insight on Bon Jovi. Justin, you're here to give out the, the real scoop. What you got? He's going to come in here a couple times as we, as we talk through these, but his top line memory is so great. We love the big three songs from the album. You Give Love, Living on a Prayer, and One and Dead or Alive for all the obvious reasons, including the talk box and Sambora's lead guitar. Yeah. And the video for Living on a Prayer, I think Bon Jovi in a harness flies out over the crowd at a concert, and we all thought this was the greatest moment. <laughs> None of us had ever been to a concert, and now all we wanted to do was go, with the assumption that something like that would happen to a screaming, happy crowd. The big deal was trying to get the DJ at the Roll Arena to play You Give Love or Prayer for a fast skate. I imagine he deliberately resisted to torment us, but any week we could get him to play one of those was a huge win. That is a, a big metric of success as a kid, is can you get the song you want played at the roller rink? I yeah, love that. That's awesome. Oh. That's a good memory. That's There's solid. some 80s-laden memories in this episode, and Rockman, I am not mad rink, at it one bit. I'm loving it. Oh, my it. gosh. Listeners, you're bringing it. Thank you all. Killing it, everybody. So, okay, we've talked about some of these tracks. Like... We've done before. We've only talked about one other album in its entirety, Paul Simon's Graceland. So let's just kind of talk track by track. You know, we'll have a few reactions, thoughts. This may be just little behind the scenes tidbits, something from the band. We have a, an insider with a, a professional voice, which, yeah. let's be honest, I'm not going to be bringing to this uh, episode. Uh, we are uh, a variety uh, podcast. Uh, uh, we are by no means experts, let alone experts in music, music theory, musicology, any of those things. So <laughs> having a, a titan in our corner is only going to help. Although you did, you did get a minor in patitude. So there is <laughs> a little bit of expertise there. It's all in the shoulder shimmy. It's It's really what it comes down to. It's not music knowledge. It's all patitude. Okay, so let's talk about this 10-track album. And we start off, this is my favorite part. Again, speaking of 80s references, even on Wikipedia, it says side A. Side A. A side and a B side, everybody. Why? Because tapes. Because the 80s were the records. It's so so awesome. So the album kicks off with Let It Rock. Mm. And this opens with like guitar and keyboards that sound like an organ. Yeah. And I don't know. Do you think this is a good starter to the album? Is this a great way to kick it off with Let It Rock? How dare you ask such a patronizing question? This is one of my favorite album opening tracks of any album. Okay. This song, I think, slaps because yeah. it, like, it crawls in on you and then it rocks so hard. It's not like it doesn't go full rock yet. But yeah. it's like this album is not going to be like any Bon Jovi you've heard before. We're going to rock hard. Okay. This, this song sounds like it should bounce off the walls of a stadium filled mm. with thousands of people. I, I love this opener. Okay. And the only reason I asked this, because in my mind, I was like, would you give love a bad name? Kick it off. Because it would open with shot through the Yeah. No, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, that's a gut punch. Yeah, yeah. Like that would be also kind of a cool 
starter, I'm not mad at Let It Rock kicking out this album, but that's just a thought I had where I'm like, Ooh. okay, do you reserve that for track two? Let It Rock, as I think, is a proper intro for all the reasons you've mentioned. I agree. I just wondered that. I'm like, granted, if you've never heard this album, it's not the obvious choice. But in retrospect, is that the obvious choice to start with? Here's my thought. Like, you give love rocks hard. First of all, what a baller move to kick off the song with the main hook from the chorus. Insane. Oh, yeah. Like, what, what a maniac to do that. I love that. But that song rocks hard. And I feel like Let It Rock sort of, like, eases you into it. Like, it's, okay. it rocks, but it's not full energy right out of the gate. Like, You Give Love a Bad Name. I feel like You Give Love, Jovi's saying, like, oh, you like Let It Rock? Well, here. This is what <laughs> this is what we're really capable of. No, that's a great point. We're going to start off great, but we're also going to like punch them with a hook in the second yeah. track. Yeah. yeah Fair yeah. enough. I like that. I feel like there is a potential reference to the doors in this, uh, oh. the lyrics, because he says break on through to the other side. And I was like, he does? Hold of, on. It's got to be a reference. Break on 100%. through to the other side. And I was like, hold on a minute. This is the doors, of course. And... Uh, I don't know if it's a reference to that. I couldn't find any evidence, but he says break on through to the other side. Exact same words. Fun fact of the episode, this will be on the SATs at the end of the year. I have been to Jim Morrison's grave in Paris. I didn't do anything on it because it's fenced off. You can't get within like 10 feet of it, but oh, yeah. uh, it is pretty cool because it looks it looks awesome. It's like an altar. There's all sorts of candles and pictures and wow. uh, underwear. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff. It's, oh it's very fun. To, it's fun to go to. <laughs> He's still getting underwear thrown at him, even uh, after death. What a rock star. Goodness. Uh, anything else about Let It Rock? No, you teased track two. I sure did. This is, I think, probably one of the big standouts, at least like one of the coolest openers to a song. Shout through the heart in your two So good. You give love a bad name. And then you just get right in. Oh, iconic. Great intro. I do have to say this is a very interesting tidbit. Did not know about. Do you know that Bon Jovi released a song called Shot Through the Heart on their no. 1984 oh, self-titled right. album? Right, 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 right. So if this is one of those songs where you don't know the name of it and you just type in Shot Through the Heart and then you start listening, and you're like, this is not the song I remember. There's a reason. That is a completely different song. Sounds pretty different off their first album. That blew my mind. I didn't know about that. So I first learned that through classmate Justin, who on this track said, You Give Love a Bad Name was a revelation and one of the biggest songs of elementary school for a long time. Mm. For true fans, its title was a source of great frustration because people tended to call it Shot Through the Heart, which you went on to explain why that is inaccurate. Mm. Uh, that is an interesting little find. That's good. I like that. Yeah. And this is the first album single, which I think is a baller move. Great idea. Like, mm. let's hit them with a, a freaking great track. People are going to want to hear more. I think this is a catchy AF song, the chorus especially. <laughs> of course it is. This is one you can't not crank. This is one you can't not sing along to. This is one that like, oh, it's got, you promised me heaven, then you put me through hell. It's got some like great little lyrics in there. I just, it's so fun. Yeah, it's perfect. All right. Well, we're not messing around, are we? No, it's only getting, we're only cranking it up more. And we're not even halfway there, but we're living on a prayer. Oh, yeah, I'm going to beat that dead horse as much as Let's I do can. It. Do it. Oh, man. This is the third track and the second single from the album. And as you mentioned, John Bon Jovi didn't really like this recording at first. 
And Richie Sambora is the one who had to convince him, like, hey, this is a good song. But in order to do that, they did rework the bass line. They did different drum fills. And this is where you tease this. They add the use of a talk box. Yeah, the talk box. Now, this is the thing where I was like, yeah, I think I know what this is. And I think I know what it does. But I'm not 100% because I've seen bands where there's like a tube next to the microphone. Right, the tube. Yeah. And I've seen musicians like blow into it or suck on it or they're doing something and i never truly knew until doing this research what they were doing but you did it ben the woo wow woo this so good wow, you might think oh that's a synthesizer that's just someone really skilled at the guitar not exactly so what is a talk box the talk box is an effects unit that allows musicians to modify the sound of a musical instrument and to apply speech sounds onto the sounds of the instrument. This is so such cool. a cool idea. So cool. So what will typically happen is a talk box will direct the sound from the instrument into the musician's mouth by means of a plastic tube that's usually right next to the microphone. And the musician controls the modification of the instrument's sound by changing the shape of their mouth. So they're vocalizing the instrument's output into the microphone. What... What? This is insane. wild. This is so cool. Again, it's one of those things that I kind of understood what it was, but never fully like put words to it or like wrapped my brain around it completely. I need to make a TalkBox playlist. Like I could happily listen to TalkBox all the yeah. time. I think it's such a cool little tool. And I think this is one of the like most iconic sounds off of the album. Maybe not track, but just Ooh. as a sound, as a sound snippet. Woo, wow, woo. Like that thing is just, it sounds so cool and interesting and, and again, unique. Like you've never really heard that anywhere, even though TalkBox has obviously been used before and after. So I thought that was awesome. And this is one that tells a little story of Tommy and Gina, Mm -hmm. um, two kids facing life struggles. I always think uh, John Mellicamp, Lil Diddy, about Jack Jack and Diane. Yeah, it's so good. It just immediately makes me think of that. But Bon Jovi said, so it's about their struggles and how their love and ambitions get them through the hard times. It's working class and it's real. I wanted to incorporate like a movie element and tell a story about people I knew. Because he's saying like he and some of the other band members like identified with this. Like this was their life story of like struggles and trying to make ends meet. And again, he worked at a shoe store. I'm sure he's not, you know, raking in money. Working at the shoe store and just trying to, you know, That's not put two dream. and two together. Yeah, reach the pinnacle by then? Yeah. And so, but it definitely reminded me of um, of Mellencamp and also, you know, they're a Jersey band. And it reminded me of uh, Bruce Springsteen because he's all about like working class America. Oh, sure, like sure, sure, that sure, kind sure. of like story element to his songs. And so I was just like, yeah, like obviously those are contemporaries, but kind of channeling some of that same energy. Love that. Is there anything else about living on a prayer? Well, a couple. I mean, I asked Mrs. Ben if she had oh. any love of, of Bon Jovi. And okay. this was, she said Living on a Prayer was like her theme song with her classmates through all of college. Oh, I love this. Because it was just like every, it was a very hard uh, major she went after. Yeah. And it was just like every week you were like living on a prayer that you were going to make it and not flunk out of school. This is a cathartic song. Like if you're struggling, like belting out the, like that part. Yeah. On a prayer. Totally. Yeah. The, the surprise for me in getting ready for this episode is that John Bon Jovi said he was inspired to write the lyrics for this song because of the trickle-down economics 
by Ronald Reagan, which is not what I expected with the story that's in this and all that. You can interpret it what you will. Go read the lyrics. You know, we try to make this a fun podcast. I'm not going to get political. But I did not expect that to be the background on where Listen, this song came from. Not what I expected, but also not 100% surprising either. Yeah, right. Especially if you're talking about like working class struggles. Totally, like, totally. Yeah. Oh, so next up again, to that. One, two, three. If you're in a boxing match right now, you are black and blue, bloody. You don't even know what's going on. You're getting punched left and right. This is the first song that is fine, but I can't say I'm like, I love this song. So we've talked about it. Social Disease, fourth track, which starts with what I'm going to call porno whispers, strip club whispers. I don't porno really know. Porno whispers? Did you just say porno whispers? What it's kind erotic. Of, it's what kind erotic. of ASMR porn are you dabbling It starts in? off with some erotic sounds. Hey, like hey. if you, listen, if you were in your room and you were listening to this on your stereo and your mom walked by, she would think you had Cinemax on and you were looking at the blurry lines and was like, uh, Benjamin, what you're watching in there, I can tell it's not America's Most Wanted. You're not listening to Unsolved Mysteries. I feel like you're dabbling in watercolors there, Eddie. I don't yeah. know what you've been watching. This is troubling. <laughs> no, I gotta, I gotta come out and admit, and this is gonna happen a lot on the B-side. I've never heard this song before. Yeah. You feel like it would just happen on a radio eventually, but it's hard to... You're This song is in the shadow of some titans on side A. Well, and that's it. I mean, if you think about it, how many tracks do you know off of some of the most popular albums? Like one or two. You get the hits. Maybe three, but yeah, like yeah. anything above that is very rare. So the fact that like we're three for three going into this song, not bad. And we're going to come back on number five uh, real quick. But yeah, this is one I, I may have heard it. I don't have a memory of it. It didn't sound completely unfamiliar, but I wasn't like, oh, yeah. The one thing I did like about this one is it did have some like blaring horns on it. And I'm yeah, kind of a sucker a for horns, vibe. a little blasting brass. So yeah, it's got it's, it's kind of catchy. It's got an interesting riff, but I would say it's hard to stand out against all of no. these big boys. Yeah, agree. And speaking of which, we're going to close out side A with we've heard it. Several times, everyone's favorite, Wanted, Dead, or Alive. alive. Our first power ballad. This is a slower song, but I think pretty rocking for a slower song. Oh, 100%. It is also the third single from this album. So they're they're keeping that power train going. And this was interesting. Did you see... What Bon Jovi's inspiration was for this particular song. I liked it. I I thought it was cool. Tell the tale. Well, just that he had been listening to Bob Seger's Turn the Page is is where he got kind of the mood from, which like I had to go. Speaking of some sultry horns, I did too. Look, I here's the thing. I I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I love a good 80 sax. Like I, uh, I I do. I really do. And so if you're like, who was that song? Like that hit sax so hard right in the beginning. It's really the decade of the saxophone and the fact that so much like 80s retro wave is just like full sax is so yeah. great. What's the band we saw a couple years ago? The Midnight. The Midnight's the amazing. Midnight. I oh, love the they Midnight. love some sax. Their sax player is nuts. He is He's so, so good. He's so talented. That dude freaking rocks out. Great band overall, but that guy is like freaking just everyone screamed hit their head off when he had a solo because he belted it out. But like you, I had to look this up and I'm like, do I know the song? And it's the, see, here I am on the road again. There I am up on the stage. And then the sultry sax, 
the intro That's and the so refrain good. throughout. Uh, yeah, that was so, wild. I didn't think about it, but I saw the influence. So Bon Jovi's up late. He's got his Walkman on. He's listening to Bob Seger on the tour bus, and he's trying to write a song. And he, he said, like, he thought that being a rock star, that lifestyle was a lot like being an outlaw back yeah. in the day. That you're, like, riding into towns to, quote, you're riding into towns and having girls and booze before the sun comes up. Yep. And that's, like, where One and Dead or Alive comes from. Here's the thing, though, and I don't know why. Maybe you can help me clear this up, though. I feel like... Wanted Dead or Alive is associated with like a biker culture, like a motorcycle mm. biker culture. And not gonna lie, it feels good to listen to when I yeah. when I take my two wheels out for a ride. But I've never found I've never felt like an outlaw on my motorcycle. Now to be fair, I'm not in a gang and I haven't provided security for Woodstock. So like I'm not I'm not part of the Hells Angels or anything, but like I don't know, like is there something I feel like there's a connect in pop culture I'm forgetting where like this song fits with motorcycles i almost wonder if like a motorcycle the idea of like a motorcycle gang even is sort of like the new version of like a posse back in the old west where instead of horses horse. yeah. you're a, yeah you're instead of a band of you know horses and you're out rousing trouble or whatever you're on your motorcycles it's like the the new version the the motorized version of a horse is a motorcycle that's just a thought i have like i guess they're they're both yeah. kind of associated with outlaws right they're i don't know like it's an interesting question but i see the connection like i definitely understand it it's funny i when i think of this song i think of like any of those movies about the old west like i could hear this song in like a big sequence of you know, like a movie with Kevin Costner in it or something where they're yeah. like Outlaws of the West or something like that. That would work. It's a great song. It's got some uh, – I'm, I'm very hard on slower songs. I don't like slow songs. I always feel like they're a waste. I think I joked with you when I saw you this weekend. There's a reason everyone gets up at a concert and goes to the bathroom during these songs. They're oh, slow. They're right, dull. Right, and everyone's right, like, right, right, right. I don't want to write a pee break song. I told Ben, I was like, I want every song to be banging so no one wants to go to the bathroom and they wet themselves. That's what I want. That's the mark of a an amazing concert or album where there's no down. It's all just rocking in your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having said that, I think this is a really great slow song. It's a great song. We're doing pretty well. We're capping side A. It's time to to flip that record, to flip that cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And you go to side B. Now, Ben, is side B where you find your best tracks, typically? You know, I know, like, there's that stereotype of, like, you don't put the best ones on side B. I know the classmates who wrote in for this episode are going to be fine with this comment, but I'm not sure everyone else is going to feel okay with it. I find most of side B really sleepy. Okay. I mean, I don't recognize most of these songs. I don't think I, I'd heard sure. most of them. It's uh, it's not the same as Side A for me. It's definitely not the same in terms of recognition. I think it still has some pretty rockin' tunes on it. And sure. I have a, a great little, I don't know if it's an Easter egg, but a great little association with our first track. Of I think I know what it is. Side and I was, B. That's my most excited comment okay. of this whole episode. That we're probably thinking of the same thing. So good. So, we kick off with Raise Your Hands. This has a fast guitar riff. Such an awesome riff to open with. Again, it gets the energy going and keeps the pace for side B. You flip it over. Dun, you're expecting something dun, slower. Dun, 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 Raise dun, dun, your hands. So yeah, good. Get a sticky situation. So well, good. that line in particular, I was like, I know this song. I know what movie it's in. Ben, exactly. are you thinking the same thing with uh, me? 
100 say it for the listeners what okay, is wait, it on, wait on three on three one okay. two three space balls so good oh. barf barf this is our intro to barf to lone star to the winnebago this is oh when the princess God. is in trouble and the king is trying to reach out for help bill pullman bill pullman oh it's so i was like i know I this song it. i can see john candy dancing in the Winnebago. He's eating out of the bucket. Eating out, like, <laughs> disgusting dog food out of a bucket, or maybe it's mog food. But anyway, oh, yeah. I was like, I'm a whoa, mom. I know this song. It's so good. I love it. I think that's, that's my only that's, reference for it. It's, all, it's a great reference, though. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Um, two, we go into Without Love. This is probably the slowest track on the album. Yeah. It's definitely your power ballad. This is your, yeah. your pee break at the uh, if it comes up at the concert. Yeah. As classmate Justin said, he's not coming out on ropes over the crowd during Without Love. Yeah, not at all. This is a song that I feel like I've heard somewhere. Ooh. Maybe. Like Social Disease, it didn't sound unfamiliar, but it didn't sound familiar, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I get it. Then we go to the third track on the B-side. We have I Die For You. And I think we kick back with some of the energy. We got our keyboard intro on this one. Yeah, this is a this is a classic. I recognize this one, but it's not as it's not as tightness as the ones on the first one. Very true. The first side. I will say, I kept getting this song mixed up in my head with the lyrics and cadence of another song that has the words "I die for you" in it. Oh, interesting. This is Brian Adams. Everything I do, do it for you. Everything I do. <laughs> You know oh it's true, God. everything I do. Yeah, that's a very different song. Very different song, but for some reason when I heard I Die For You, my mind did not go to Bon Jovi's song. Went. My mind went okay. to that Brian Adams song, which again, I didn't realize was Brian Adams, and I was like, oh, darn. You don't want to be associated with that. Bless his heart. I'm sure Brian Adams is a lovely gentleman, but you know, sure. I don't have much else for this song. Yeah, me neither. Again, it kind of kicks us back to a little bit of energy, and then it slows us down again with Never Say Goodbye. Never say goodbye. This one feels like a song that would play during the credits of an 80s rom-com. A thousand percent. I mean, I think it's a good love ballad. Like, it's not, yeah. it's not bad. It's it's another one I just hadn't really heard before. Or maybe during the high school dance scene of an 80s rom-com, but probably it'd be the first one that goes, or maybe the, no, yeah. it's the second track of the credits. <laughs> it's a slow dance song, the second track of the credits. No one's even in the theater anymore. That's so mean of me to say, but it's kind of what it felt like. I was like, yeah, yeah no, I mean, there's nothing wrong. wrong with it, but again... I'm very hard against slow songs, and so this one I'm just like, eh. I'm right there with you. I get it. And then we wrap up the album and the B-side with Wild in the Streets. This feels like a final send-off track of an album. It feels like an encore song. It's not their best song, but it's kind of like, hey, this is leading us out. Ooh, it's kind of kicking, but it's very like standard rock fare. It doesn't stand out as great or as awful. It's just somewhere in the middle, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, I love the story the lyrics tell. I think it's a good song. I it, I, I think it's a fun song. And it feels just very 80s. Like, it feels nostalgic. It sure. does, like, take me back. I, I like the song. It's good. It's not just not one I had been... Uh, I had chosen on karaoke night out of the pub. For sure. But, I mean, at this point, I'm leaving this album saying, I recognize six of these ten songs. That's yeah, crazy. That's that's pretty good. I can't say that for a lot of albums that I'm not like no. intimately familiar with. For an album that I never listened to start to finish, that's an impressive feat. I was like, holy crap. So super cool. Very cool. 
Well, there's a lot of tracks here. We had a very important question for our listeners. You're up for karaoke. Which track or tracks do you sing your heart out to? Oh, yeah, that's good. First off, what does Benjamin sing? What's he belting out? Oh, I've definitely requested Living on a Prayer. But you okay. know this. Like, you like going out to karaoke. Like, you have to time it right. Mm. You know, you got to put in your request. First of all, you have to try and estimate what the volume and the throughput is. Because you can request your song. It might be an hour and a half delay. might be a 20-minute delay. You got to feel that out. And Living on a Prayer is not something you, you bump up at... 7 p.m. Mm. It's not even a 10 p.m. song. It's like an 11.45, 12.30 at night. You got to wait for the right time to pop out living on a prayer. Now, see, that's interesting. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because that, I think, is most people's karaoke experience. Mine has always been a group of people who know each other have a private room and we're singing to each oh, other. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's my favorite way to do it. I mean, I've been to karaoke and I have sung at a regular karaoke, I think all in groups with like, you know, classmates we were in college or whatever but to actually go up and sing a solo i don't know that i'd ever do that in front of strangers but in front of i would torture people i know that's that's what it is you could (laughs) it's the familiarity (laughs) that really binds okay that's good that's right okay well we have your song let's go back to our listeners two out of three not super big fans back to mikey b not surprising. Wanted dead or alive. Again, of this course. is his so uh, the, only one he likes. the only good song. But, you know, he could have said none. <laughs> so, it's true. So there's it's that. True. There's that. Uh, what else do we have? Juan Bongiorno is also a man after my heart. Same same one. He'd he pump out Living Out a Prayer in karaoke. All good. All great. All amazing. Uh, did we get another dead or alive? Did we get another Living Out a Prayer? Actually, you know what? We could have all three of our listeners hit those top three singles because Zebra Pants Jim said, you give love a bad name. So we could have a whole karaoke concert with our listeners here. Thanks for giving us the variety there, Jim. Appreciate it. I freaking love it. I might do you give love a bad name. That might be the one. Yeah, I think it's a good call. Yeah, I just, I love that intro so much. It would be fun to do that. I don't know. I think it might be my favorite. Well, let's talk a little bit. We've talked about all these songs. So music videos. Yeah, thank you. I did not get a chance to visit any of these, but you did, and you noticed an interesting trend. So let's talk a little bit about that. No, for sure. I mean, as listeners of the show, and you know, like, I love music videos. That's like a really deeply held love of mine of music, totally, is, is how you represent these stories in the visual arts. And I saw as we researched for this episode, in an interview, talking about why the album was so successful, Slippery Went, uh, Richie Sambora said a big part of it was they didn't underestimate the power of the visuals that they put along Mm. with the album. To quote, I think it was largely to do with the videos. At that point, we'd made five videos that didn't capture who we were as people. People who saw us live knew what we were about, that we were an American rock band, but we had to project that in our videos. We simplified things to get our identity across, wrote some strong hooks, and took control of our own videos. Quote. So when I read that, I was like, oh, there's got to be some good music. We're talking Pat Benatar flying to Nazi Germany, planting bombs, rescuing (laughs) hostages. Like, there's got to be some great videos. Yeah. And here's the thing. There are no music videos, what I would call a music video. Okay. Every single song in this album, most of them have like a live recording from a concert of them that it's just sort of stylized. And it'll be a mix of like them performing the song live and then a little like backstage flavor, like them like chatting it up and like talking with groupies, high five and getting psyched to run out on stage. Yeah. But no, like what we think of like, what you think of when I say music video. Well, here's an important question. Are they... At any point, standing back to back, playing guitars, 
looking dead into the camera, making kiss faces, little roguish smiles, winks, all that kind of that stuff. That's 98% yes, of all okay. the music video <laughs> is most of that. And here's the thing, like I I get what Richie's saying of like really trying to tell people who they are. Like they are ha- they must have put on a great live show. They're having a great time. They're awesome. The energy's huge. Yeah. It's not like the stunning visual insanity of like, I went to um, an ACDC concert Mm. once and that was like a treat for the eyes. It was insane. All the props and the stage stuff they had. Right. It's like that. It's really just the band and a good light show. The two things that stuck out to me though, and this, the second one is really going to be the lesson for the podcast. And we're going to get back to that. All right. Here's the thing. When I looked up living on a prayer, trying to find that music video, it has a billion views. A billion with a B. Which I had just never seen anything on YouTube with a billion views. I've seen tens of millions. I've seen hundreds of millions. I've never seen a YouTube video with a billion views. That's that's living on a prayer. Crazy. Which is fun. I mean, it's one of these live concerts. These seem super fun to hang out with. They seem like awesome guys. But like, that blew my mind. That is really inconceivable. Massive. Here's the lesson. Watching the music video, quote music video, live concert, of Without Love with Bon Jovi, who's got great hair and jeans. There's no way you can breathe in those things. There's so much zooming in on his face. What I couldn't let go of in this music video is that deep, recessed, vertical cavern between your nose and your upper lip. His is so pronounced. And I was like, his is just, that's like iconic of his features. Sort of like Gaston and Beauty and the Beast has like an intense butt chin. Like, what is that? <laughs> what is that thing on your upper lip? So I had to go digging for it. I was like, what is, what is this thing? Oh my God. And that little crevice between the middle of your nose and your upper lip is called the philtrum. Oh yeah, that sounds familiar. There you go. You thought Bon Jovi was all about the hair and the pants, but I want you to know, he also has one of the most pronounced philtrums in all of rock And there's your anatomy fact for the week, courtesy of 80s High. That's the secret weapon, the philtrum that is (laughs) not just a crevice, but a crevasse. You could fall deep into his eyes and his philtrum. And (laughs) his philtrum. That's all I have for music videos, though, because uh, I just thought it was interesting that they talk so much about the visuals. And it did capture their personality, but it wasn't like a directed story music video like I think we're used to in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'd be interested... To hear from listeners if they have a different experience. I feel like that is a hallmark of these glam metal bands where a lot of their albums were like all those big hair bands. It was all of them on stage performing their hearts out. It's very theatrical. It's very energetic. They're not just standing behind a microphone swaying back and forth. They're jumping, they're kicking. They're like, they're so into it. Apparently he's flying out over the crowd It's a production. Yeah. And so I think like to their point, it's like, hey, we want to capture who we are. Well, that showmanship is a big part of who they are. Not just them. It's really the genre. So we've talked a little bit about it. I do want to break this down. Yeah. So there's glam metal, hair metal, pop metal, somewhat interchangeable. I always find genres, subgenres, very hard to classify. There's like a thousand names. Some of them are interchangeable. Some are sub, you know, if you look at the Venn diagram, they overlap 80%, but also with, it's super confusing. So if you are a a purist and a a know-it-all, if you're like Justin and you have 30 degrees in this stuff, you're probably going to be punching your steering wheel as I say all these words. But I want to give an abridged version of what this genre was because Bon Jovi was a big part of it. And arguably some might say they weren't a a, a true um, 
the truest form of this genre. There's some dispute about that, which we do want to talk about. Sure. So glam metal, also known as hair metal or pop metal, it is a subgenre of heavy metal. It features pop-influenced hooks, guitar riffs, upbeat rock anthems, slower power ballads. We've seen all of this and talked about it so far with this album. Yeah. And it borrows heavily from the fashion and image of 1970s glam rock. Sure. So glam rock really in the 70s came out of the UK primarily. This is bands wearing outrageous costumes. They're wearing eyeliner and makeup. They've got long kind of different hairstyles. Glitter. Ben, you mentioned glitter earlier. They're They're just showered in glitter, platform heels. It's very showy. Glam metal borrows from that. Also visual elements from like T-Rex, David Bowie, and even to a lesser extent, New Wave and Punk. You know, we talked about Talking Heads, right? So you have that influence and you also have this fusion of like heavier metal theatrical acts. This is your Kiss and your Alice Cooper variety, which obviously Kiss to me, I mean, Alice Cooper certainly had the eyeliner and stuff, but like to me, Kiss with the painted faces, that is like peak of the like theatrical heavy metal acts. And so you kind of mix all that together in a blender and you get this early glam metal band lineup, your Motley Crue's. Hanoi Rocks, Rat, Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, Dokken, Bon Jovi. So these are your earlier influences on glam metal. Mm -hmm. Really, this genre kind of achieves their biggest commercial success around 1983 to 1991. So Bon Jovi kind of slots in, you know, basically that sort of becomes a thing as they become a band and then arguably hit their stride with that with this album. During this phase of it, you bring in prominent bands. You've got Poison, Skid Row, Cinderella, Warrant. So they're coming in like during the height and pushing more of the envelope. Again, from this visual perspective, glam metal is flashy. You've mentioned those tight jeans. Tight-fitting clothes are essential. There's makeup. Sparkles. There's also this kind of androgynous aesthetic to a lot of the it's it's oh, somewhat sure. sexualized yeah. but it's also done in like an androgynous kind of way a lot of denim and leather a lot of lycra a lot of spandex a lot of lace heavy use of bright colors so you've got a lot of this that hits all of the senses uh, <laughs> and it really sticks it out until early to mid 90s that's when we start getting into grunge and alternatives and that's where hard rock kind of takes that turn and you've got that like natural stripped down aesthetic everything's a little a little darker a little grittier and all that kind of stuff and that bombastic visual style is rejected for just more of like you know your cobains and stuff like that so yeah that's just a little bit in a nutshell of the genre which i just wanted to share a little bit of that because bon jovi is often like considered in this pantheon at large but i would say some people might disagree with that if you're really into the seed you know very clearly the difference between the micro genres but you know if you're scratching the surface you might not know but some people took qualm with this yeah there's a little uh i don't know if umbrage is the right word but you know some people you know kind of took issue and so you know with that criticism in mind we also threw out to the listeners like hey how do you think bon jovi stands up in the pantheon of hair metal bands of the decade like Quiet Riot, White Snake, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Twisted Sister, and so on. 
So we heard back. So classmate Mikey, again, answering the question before he even puts his head up in the air (laughs) in class, he just says they don't. Yeah. They were never hard enough in my book to be considered hair metal. They were so eagles, they may as well be an egg. I thought that was pretty funny. That was pretty good. Dang. They should just get lumped into pop rock, honestly. I think the fact that they later in life put out a country album supports this. I mean, to his point. They were, I think, seen as one of those bands that did kind of push it into the commercial pop realm. So I don't think that that criticism is, you know, unwarranted by any stretch. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Yeah, I can see how you would see this as like a commercial sellout, perhaps. But I will say, having been a Bob Seger fan and writing Wanted Dead or Alive, I, I think the country album makes a little sense. <laughs> it's, a li- it's a little on brand. I mean, you're not wrong. I feel like that's sort of a, a prototypical thing where in their layer album, which, you know, we can talk a little bit about in contemporary culture, they, d- they do kind of go country a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, we, yeah. we see a little bit of writing on the, uh, on the trash bag here of where that came from. Writing on the trash bag. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, Uh, Who's next? Yeah, Juan Bongiorno says, way more pop. Bon Jovi had a decidedly more VH1 vibe than any of the real hair metal bands. They look like they have stable marriages and critical thinking skills. (laughs) This is great. They might even know which fork to use at a fancy dinner. Nobody has ever said that about Axl Rose or Vince Neil. <laughs> That's awesome. I love the shade. I love Such the shade, shade, but I also love that they're like, you know what? They're actually too good to be like true hair metal. They're they're a little yeah. bit above the cut. I thought that was hilarious. It was so good. Uh, Zebra Pants Jim closes us out. Bon Jovi was good, but they weren't heavy metal. Guns mm. N' Roses and Motley Crue were definitely harder. And still have a loyal following today, even if most of their audience has probably lost their hair. Oh, whop, whop, whop. Too soon, Zebra Pants Jim, too soon. Oh, man. He's not wrong. He's also not, not wrong. wrong. No. Okay, well, I'm glad we asked that question because, again, you know, I, I was reading up on this and I, I saw a little bit of contention. I was like, I just want to throw it out to our classmates, see, you know, where people land on it. And not surprisingly, I think... While they're in that classification, they're not seen as the truest, purest form of it. They're maybe on the more pop commercial side of the spectrum. I think it's fair. Okay. Well, we thought we would close out chemistry class with a bit of the reception. We already talked about some of the success of the album. Yeah, get into it. This is crazy. So let's kind of do just a little bit of a revisit. Now, we could sit here and talk about accolades. That's not always the most interesting thing to do but a few highlights as we mentioned this album was a massive commercial success this album produced the string of hit songs three top 10 billboard hot 100 hits two of those you give love a bad name and living on a prayer reached number one making bon jovi the first glam metal band to ever have two consecutive number one billboard hot 100 chart hits hey come on that's huge that's huge three years into being a band that's insane. The album did peak at number one on the Billboard 200. This also made Bon Jovi's first number one album in the U.S. It was there for a long time, too, wasn't it? Uh, it looks like 38 weeks in the top five. 38 weeks oh, in the top that's five. That's a long time. Eight in the number one slot. It is the best-selling album of 1987 in the United States. It eventually reached Diamond Certification and currently stands at 12 million copies, making it the 48th best-selling album in the U.S. That's amazing. It's huge. Uh, Similarly, in the U.K., it's three times platinum certification. 
in Canada, it's diamond status, and it's six times platinum status in Australia. So it's got international success as well. I will say that, you know, Slippery When Wet met with generally positive reviews, but it's not without its critics. And I read some interesting... Uh, snarky oh, reviews which I would I can't wait to hear there's these. just a couple I thought were hilarious one critic said that they were a Xerox of Quiet Riot which again oh. I'm loving our 80s references Xerox is a great 80s reference it's great also that some of the tracks have sub meatloaf lyrics <laughs> what sub so that's just that's that's cold I'm sure there's more scathing indictments out there. Uh, I'm sure some of our classmates have already made them and will continue to. Ben, I think we've kind of covered the gamut in terms of the album, the tracks, overall impressions, this band, this genre they sit in. Is there anything else we need to talk about in chemistry before we wrap up? No. I feel like we've given a fantastic overview of this album and how it did and our thoughts and feelings about it. Great. Well, I'm glad you said that because I am getting dizzy from all the aerosol hairspray mixed with that oh sweaty God. spandex. Oof. So let's grab <laughs> some air in the cafeteria, maybe order a wet burrito. Then we're going to get the band wet back burrito. together in contemporary culture to see what happens next for Bon Jovi after Slippery When Wet. I'll see you there. The biggest rock anthems The greatest rock stars Get Dad Rockin' this Father's Day Now, that's what I call Dad Rock Okay, we made it back yeah, how was lunch? Was it good? Did you enjoy the meatloaf? Did you like it? Was it good? Uh, unfortunately, it was sub-meatloaf, uh, <laughs> so it wasn't as delicious as it could have been. That is a great way to characterize better. school lunch, sub-meatloaf. Sub-meatloaf. <laughs> That's disgusting. Ooh, a meatloaf sub, actually. That sounds kind of good. Put some marinara on there, a little meatball oh, sub. Oh, yeah, like a little meatball action. Yeah, no, I'd be into it. All right, we've made it to contemporary culture. This is where we talk about usually what comes after the 80s. I'm going to say what comes after Slippery When Wet, because I want to play in the late 80s a little bit, and then we'll kind of move forward. As we mentioned, there are any number of ongoing pop culture references that can link back to some of these songs, whether they showed up in a movie or a soundtrack or even like uh, those rock band games. Some of these songs show up oh, in yeah, that. of course. All over the place. We don't need to talk about a lot of them, but are there any standouts, Ben, that you can think of? We already talked about it showing up in Spaceballs, Raise Your Hands. Is there anything else that you're like, oh my gosh, this song There's showed up one. in this movie? Okay, what you got? I've got one and it was driving me nuts because I was like, oh, okay, one and dead or alive. I was like, it's a motorcycle thing, right? It's got to be a motorcycle thing. And like, there was that like reality show about motorcycle guys for a while. And I was like, oh, maybe oh, it's from yeah. that show. And I went and looked it up. Totally not that show. And I was like, ah, dead end. Where is it from? And then finally it hit me. Deadliest Catch. Oh. Wanted Dead or Alive is the theme song to Deadliest Catch. Wait, it's the theme song? Yes. I've never clearly watched that show. I would have remembered. Oh, wow, my the God. The theme song. When that finally clicked, I was like, oh, my God, that's right. That's how it opens. Wanted Dead or Alive. Wow. That's the one I've got. 
what are some big ones? I mean, like you said, I'm sure we can catch a thousand, but what are some ones that this audience is going to be stoked about? Well, the one that always sticks out to me is, I think it's the first season of How I Met Your Mother and the Barney character played by Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, so good. It's New Year's Eve and they're in a limo and he's created a playlist. And his whole thing is like, albums rise and fall. I want all rise album. And so he made a mixed CD basically to celebrate that evening. And the first song that he keeps hitting play on, shot through the heart in your two And so there's a running gag where he keeps hitting that to like get the energy back up. Like when, you know, things are kind of down and out for the characters as their, their whole evening keeps falling apart. And I just, I love that every time. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is on that album. So cool. So yeah, that's probably that's my, like my biggest Good reference because that's one of my favorite sitcoms. I love that show. That's solid. And that's all I got too. I just had the one. Like I said, I'm, it shows okay. up in any okay. number Way of places. But yeah. personally, top of mind, that's the one thing I could think of. No, that's good. I, again, we could go on for a thousand years. But yep. I'm glad, you know, those are two good highlights where you can go find it. Love it. Okay. Well, huge success, as we mentioned, Slippery When Wet. But as Bon Jovi, they're coming off that album and that tour thinking like, man, we don't want people to think we're a one-hit wonder. That we just had this flash in the pan, this fluke album, and we're done. Yeah, we're washed out. right, 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 right. So really shortly after their tour wraps up, they're back into the studio to release their 1988 album, New Jersey. Mm. And this one has a couple songs you might uh, recognize. There's Bad Medicine. Bad Medicine. Oh, sure, sure, sure. That's a great one. Yeah. So there's that one. The other one's kind of a power ballad, I'll Be There For You. I listened to it. I was like, eh, I might remember this song. Oh, yeah. Song. I know that one for sure. You do? Okay. I know that song. Yeah, yeah, they both yeah. hit number one on Billboard Hot 100. So not as many tracks as Slippery When Wet. But clearly, they still got it. They're putting out some sure. you know, catchy, well-done tunes. This is a great note I almost missed about this band around this time. I'm ready. Bon Jovi were the first band officially sanctioned by the Soviet government to perform in the Soviet Union. Really? And therefore, New Jersey, this album, became the first U.S. album released legally in the USSR. Wow. That's fascinating. That's a good find. Now, would this have happened if we didn't win the Miracle on Ice hockey match in the Olympics against USSR? If the underdog team had not come through and started the fall of the Soviet Union, I don't know that Bon Jovi gets this album into the USSR officially. I don't think so. I think they're directly linked. There you go. That's, That's glass nose for you, baby. So anyway. Oh, my God. All right. So 1998. Uh, just a special note, a two-CD special edition bonus of Slippery When Wet comes out. It features a lot of live versions of several of these songs. But notably, it does add two studio outtakes. As we mentioned, they recorded 30 songs, 10 make it on the album. Well, you get a treat yeah. with this bonus, and you get two outtakes, Borderline and Edge of a Broken Heart. And that mm-hmm. second song, mm-hmm. Edge of a Broken Heart, for some reason, John Bon Jovi kind of beats himself up. And saying, like, this totally should have been on the album. I'm kicking myself. He's really kind of annoyed that they didn't release this song initially. And I, like, I listened to it. I, I totally get it. It fits aesthetically. But I'm like, it's not like that was their best track they left off. And it's like, guys, you could have struck gold a fifth time if only you'd put this on there. Did you listen to this song, Ben? No, I, I meant to go back and listen to it. What did you think? 
it's good. It's fine. Like, it's a good song, but it didn't hit like some of their other ones where I was just like, yeah, I totally see what he's saying, but I don't see anything where it's like, you numbskull. How could you yeah. have missed gold, Jerry? Gold. So it's gold, Jerry. <laughs> So anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, you can go check those out. I'm sure it's on Spotify and stuff like that. I always love that. And uh, the other thing I'd say really, you know, studio album-wise is they have released 15 studio albums. So that's 12 more after Slippery When Wet. And their most recent album uh, was released in 2020 under the same title. It's called 2020. It was a wonky year. They were going to release it. covid Put on hold because of the pandemic. You know, tours obviously canceled. But later in that year, they do release the album. And so they're still around today. There's been a little change in the lineup. Oh, yeah, right. Bassist Alec John Such did quit the band in 1994. Very sadly, he did pass away last year in 2022. So unfortunately, they've lost one of their founding members. And uh, longtime guitarist and co-songwriter Richie Sambora, we've talked about him. He had an influence yeah, of like, of course. hey, you got you to gotta put this song on there. Let's rework it. We can do it. We'll do the wow, it's going to be killer, man. Uh, he left the band in 2013, though the hot goss as of February earlier this year, 2023, he was in talks about potentially rejoining the band. No way. Now, okay, that's, see, that's some hot contemporary culture news. There that's you go. Good. There that's you go. That's great. A mere month or so ago, that was the, the scuttlebutt. Now. Do it, buddy. Do it. By all accounts, they're not touring this year. They did have a tour last year. You know, they're still out there. They're still uh, entertaining the masses. So who knows? Maybe Bon Jovi 2024, we might see the return of Mr. Sambora. Stay tuned, everybody. That'd be awesome. That'd be huge. That kind of takes us up to the present. There's a lot we, more we could say about the band and the albums and the songs and everything. But you know what? That's why there's all those great outlets for listening to music. You can go check them all out. You can stream them yeah. if you're curious. Uh, we're not here to, to get into the nitty gritty because that would be, you know, episodes and episodes long. Uh, what we are here to do, though, is close out with our listeners with one final very <laughs> important question. This is awesome. If Bon Jovi writes the theme song to your life at this exact moment, tell us the title and what it sounds like. Is it a rock anthem, a power ballad, so on? Ben, what do our listeners have to say? Do you want to kick us off with Mikey B? I love it. Poor Mikey B, because I know what he's going through right now. He's he's told us stories about this. Mikey B's uh, rock anthem right now. Actually, not a rock anthem. His song right now by Bon Jovi is The Kid Won't Sleep. He needs a lullaby oh. right now. They're mm. going through some stuff in the household. He needs a good, slowed down, soft Bon Jovi lullaby. Yeah, maybe some soft chimes or, dun, 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 you know, a little something. Something off the B-side, I think yeah. is what he something, something off the B-side. Nice and hush-hush. Well, hopefully that will not be the soundtrack to your life much longer. Good luck, man. Lister Juan Bongiorno had to say this. Uh, we're going to come back to this word. It's a mixolydian thrash guitar anthem that can only be played by someone standing atop a flaming motorcycle, speeding down an icy highway, wearing naught but leather chaps. Now I'm going to pause right there for my own commentary. Sure. I want you to dig into this one. If this is not a scene from Mad Max Fury Road, I don't know be. what is. There's a flame guitar, everybody. Come on. This is actually what my birth looked like. If you watch the VHS, <laughs> the replay, this is what it was like. 
So with that visual in mind, this song is called I Need to Brush My Dogs So I Can Vacuum My Living Room. I love it. You know what? Uh, ben, Ben, you have a dog. Does Barker Ben, uh, does Barker, Barker ben, ben shed? Is your dog a shedder? No, the reason, one of the reasons I got this dog to be hypoallergenic, but uh, actually the, the fur creates little clumps. So it's like little tumbleweeds. It's a little Wild oh. West shootout in every room. A little tumbleweed rolls over. Is it playing wanted, dead or alive? Just like a nice little yeah, exactly. cowboy <laughs> vigilante exactly. song. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, uh, so Mixolodian. We had to look this up because clearly somebody is winning the spelling bee and it's not Ben or myself. But Ben, what, what did we find in our, um, our research? Right. So as we earlier said, this classmate is really killing it in literature class, but apparently also in music theory, because this is the fifth mode of the major scale. This is a dominant scale. And for those really into the music, it's most notable for its flattened seventh, which creates a question like tension often found in jazz and blues. Mm. Uh, well done, Nicholas. It's going to be between, see, this is where we get into the contention of 80s high, and it's always kind of a hard toss-up. The word of this episode is either going to be Mixolodian or Filtrum. And it's up to you to decide really what the big lesson was out of this episode. We need to put that to an Instagram poll to uh, settle the score. Uh, last but not least, Zebra Pants Jim comes out and just says he needs a rock anthem, and it's called Can't Keep Me Down. It's I good. love it. I like it, Jim. Don't let anyone stop you. That could actually be a Bon Jovi song. Listen, Mikey B and Juan, actually. I love your song titles. Do not get me wrong. If you told me Bon Jovi wrote a song called this, I would believe it. I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's off their like seventh album, Can't Keep Me Down, 100%. Here's the question that all of our listeners are wondering, Christopher, though. Yes. What's your Bon Jovi song right now? I knew the theme. I had to think about the title, and I thought long and hard about it, and this is what I landed on. The theme song for right now in my life is, For the Love of Everything Holy, parentheses, Get It Together, Man. <laughs> Get it together, man. It would be what I'm calling a fuss rock styling. Fuss rock. Okay. Yeah, fuss rock. This is another subgenre. Think of like a hands thrown up in the air with a come on, dude, edge. Pull yourself together, man. Like, that's what it is. So for the love that's of solid. everything holy, parentheses, get it together, man. That's really, really good. I had to give this a lot of thought, and I'm going to go with the track title for mine is Backbreaker. Oh, I know why. The true inspiration is, is I've just been doing a lot of landscaping in the last couple of weeks, and my back just really hurts. You have been hard at work in that backyard. You are, you're yeah. turning it into a little oasis, but uh, like, like at what cost, sir? Uh, yesterday, I think, like, over 200 feet, I moved like 26 cubic feet of pebbles. It was exhausting. Wow. But I like it. I want it to sound like an ACDC, like, shook me all night long. Mm. Um, because, you know, Backbreaker, like 80s, like, there could be a double entendre. Like, you could play with Backbreaker a little yeah. bit. It could be good. It could be good. And it's not like Pat Benatar's Heartbreaker. No, 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 no. And make a great, like, WWE, like, uh, arena entrance song. Ooh. <laughs> Like it would be when you take off your cloak and you have nothing on but a spandex lycra outfit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's the image for the class. Well, that was awesome. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, uh, all of our listeners, for all of your very thoughtful, cool insights. You make us better. You really do. So, thank you so much. So, hey, if you ever want to be involved, 
just email us at 80shighpodcast at gmail.com and say, I want to be on your on your list to get those fun quizzes and uh, offer my input. We will gladly add you to it. But you know what? We are fast approaching the end of this tape. Uh, in fact, it's clicked back to the A side. Oh, man. That means it's time to give our reviews on how this album holds up today. And to do that, let's get to math class to see if Slippery When Wet is an album we'd never say goodbye to or if it's living on a prayer. Ooh, well done. All right, Ben, we've gone on this musical journey. It's had its ups, its rock anthems. It's had its down, its power ballads. Uh, How do you think this album, its songs... The band, split it any way you like. How does it hold up today in 2023? All right, class, raise your hands if you like this album. Uh, no, you know, I want to start with actually a real professional music critic, classmate Justin, who wrote in. Oh, lovely. Because this sounds just like his writing. This is his final say on it. Uh, to quote, I think Bon Jovi hit this perfect sweet spot in the commercial landscape at the time. They were a bit of a gateway band into hair metal, but completely safe and palatable. Mm. You could rock out, but without really any of the dangers of rock and roll. I imagine many teenage girls had Bon Jovi posters on their wall, but that, say, Skid Row band members had posters of teenage girls on theirs. (laughs) I like it. Saucy. (laughs) Bon Jovi was just working on his way into the Songwriters Hall of Fame and appearances on Ally McBeal, which all those teenage girls had grown up to watch. Oh, he was also on Sex in the City. Oh, yeah. See, there's a little, little more contempo culture coming He was a here. Carrie Love interest, yeah. Here's the thing. Like, I find this an iconic album of the 80s. Like, this screams what the 80s scene, especially in rock and this sort of area, but pop rock for a way, was like. And I find, uh, I find Bon Jovi such a likable guy. Mm. <laughs> and in the interviews I watched, like, yes, they were sort of rock stars and they lived the rock star life. But they weren't as nuts or awful as you can hear some other people who achieve that level of fame kind of can abuse that power. I think right. Bon Jovi has always been pretty, pretty stand-up dude. I'm not saying he's the fraggles of pop rock, but he's pretty good. He's <laughs> yeah. a pretty good guy. Yeah, for sure. I like watching him. You know, you watch these music videos, quote music videos, let's just say recordings of concerts. <laughs> and like, they're great. It looks like an incredible live show. Like, I hope we have some listeners who write in and tell us about their experiences going to a live Bon Jovi concert back mm. in the day, because that would, I'm sure it was awesome. Again, it's interesting how you're choosing your topics here, because I think, like, we talked about Herbie Hancock really opened the world up to DJing and scratching and mixing in that kind of way. Yeah. And Bon Jovi made rock palatable for a much wider audience and probably then made those new listeners find, you know, dig deeper into the subgenres of rock. And, like, you, you talked about all the different types. So I think it's a massively important album. Obviously, it's got the the chops and the accolades to prove that it was. And who doesn't sing along at the top of their lungs to living on a prayer uh, at karaoke or any party? It's got great singles off of it. Uh, and I think it definitely currently stands the test of time and probably for another 40 years into the future. It's a solid, solid album. Great pick. I love it. That's awesome. I, I love what you and Justin had to say. I would just say, yeah, there's no doubt Slippery When Wet has left a mark on pop culture. Those iconic tracks, recognizable to this day, still enjoyable 37 years later. I mean, if songs like You Give Love a Bad Name or Living on a Prayer pop up on an 80s Spotify playlist, you better believe I'm cranking that in my car and I'm belting out the lyrics along with the chorus. 
Uh, it's just fun. It's a fun album. It is music you don't really have to think about. I don't have to analyze the lyrics. I just enjoy the sweet guitar riffs, the electronic growl, the splash of horns and keyboard, the catchy choruses. It's just a good time. I think as an album, it does have a lot of rocking tunes, which as I mentioned, I certainly appreciate. There are those few spots where the album, I think, kind of lags, but overall, I think it flows and is ordered well. So I think the way in which they ordered it does make sense. It's not one of those albums where I'm like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I appreciate that. And, you know, no surprise, the A-side outperforms the B-side, as you would expect. But I don't think the B-side, having said that, stumbles very little. I just think it's less recognizable. I would say I definitely understand why diehards of glam metal might find Bon Jovi a bit too mainstream for their tastes. I think Justin worded it very well. And I think it's a fair assessment. You know, personally, I don't have an iron in that fire, but I get it. And I'm not sure that there's anything that doesn't hold up in the lyrics or the actions of the band. I could be missing something, but it doesn't sound like you found anything either that Bon Jovi has done, that any of the Mm. band members have done, or lyrics where you're like, "Eh," or scandals or anything like that. Like, yeah, they were dudes having fun back in the day, but they didn't seem to be like, a-holes, they weren't, you know, trashing no, places right, and being right. rude they're, they're or, you easy know, to like. monsters or anything like that. So that plus just having really great music, I think, does allow them to stand the test of time. And, and overall, I would just close by saying I picked this topic for the pure enjoyment of listening to some cranking metal tunes and to learning more about the glam metal genre I grew up with but never really delved into. And I would just say I feel satisfied on both levels. Ah, so good. let it rock, let it roll. Let it roll. This was a great revisit. Thank you for joining me. Listeners, thank you for joining us and listening in. I am dying to find out if I was to flip this tape over to the seaside, this would tell us what comes next for our next episode the of seaside. 80s High. The Can seaside. seaside. Have you set it on the edge, maybe? I mean, it's got to be a different form factor, but we can make it happen. We're going to revolutionize music by having the seaside. Ben, I need to know what we're going to learn about on the next episode of 80s High. You know, I'm, I'm looking at what we've put out. and We've had some awesome topics in season three, our junior year of 80s high school. Yeah. And I've got to keep a variety. I got to, I got to pick something we haven't done in a while topic because I dare say... And listeners, maybe some of you agree with us. We are the preeminent. We are the number one 80s pop culture variety podcast out there on the earwaves that you can get into. And you know what? We haven't talked a lot about reading this season. We've gotten into reading Rainbow. God, that was a good episode. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned earlier that 80s high is where people come to get their hot goss, to get their news. Okay. Where do we, the hosts... Ben and Chris, go to get our hot goss and our heart news. Okay. Well, we go back to a little tabloid started in 1979. Oh, dear. That tells us the truth, the real facts, (laughs) what's really going down. (laughs) That Bat Boy has been found in New Jersey. Elvis was abducted by aliens. And Merfolk were discovered off the coast of Scotland. Really? We're going to go back and find out about weekly world news. Oh, my goodness. So this is like an Inquirer style of magazine that you would see at the checkout aisle. It's at that end cap. It's capturing 
your young imagination, Loch Ness Monster, netted <laughs> off the coast. Oh, my. That is great. Not what I would expect. No. Very different and very fun. This is going to be insane. Our first episode was Unsolved Mysteries. We've talked about my love and curiosity of cryptids. Wow. We are going to get into the ridiculous mythology of this newspaper. Also, interestingly, we have talked about how Weird Al can make parodies because it like fits in that little niche around copyright protection. I really yeah. want to know. We're going to learn about libel. <laughs> And yes. I really want to know how this magazine skirts the line of libel or maybe didn't because my <laughs> goodness, I am so incredibly curious. So listeners, put on your tinfoil hats and for our older listeners, put on your bifocals because on the next episode of 80s High, we're going back to weekly world news. Thanks everyone for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical!